If you have a talk to give, don't give it until you can say yes to these five questions. Welcome down My Walk, the reading podcast that helps you capture reading's aha moments and apply them to your life and leadership. I'm about two hours away from addressing a group of our constituents here at Lancaster Bible College, Capital Seminary, and Graduate School. Now, my job involves a lot of communication, verbal and written, live and recorded. Some of it's remembered, and I'm afraid much of it is used and then discarded and, sadly, probably forgotten often. So when I'm reading a book and I see a communication gem, in other words, how I can do it better, it usually piques my curiosity. And such was the case when I was listening to Barbara Tuckman on my walk describe Edmund Burke, the great 18th century Irish statesman, economist, and philosopher. Now, Burke served in the House of Commons of Great Britain from 1766 to 1794. Now, you know what that means, don't you? It, it means he was serving while America was gaining its independence. Now, for context, in her book, The March of Folly, Barbara Tuckman is chronicling how throughout history nations act against their own self-interest. She writes, Mankind, it seems, makes a poor performance of government than of almost any other human activity. In other words, she's saying nations have a way of shooting themselves in the foot again and again and again. They make a policy and then they take actions that actually hurt themselves in the long run, if not even sometimes in the short run. So she titles part four of The March of Folly, The British Lose America. And as she does in her other chapters, she's chronicling what she calls the wooden-headed moves that Great Britain makes that ultimately cost them the new country, that cost them America. Now, we're at the point in the book when word of the Boston Massacre reaches Parliament. And Edmund Burke, he sees this as another piece of mismanagement by his country, another wooden-headed move regarding the whole American affair, and he's going to let people know it. So he speaks to Parliament. But as Tuckman points out, it's not just another speech. Edmund Burke is the living embodiment of communication mastery. Listen to what she says. By this time, news had reached England of the so-called Boston Massacre, which had raised local emotions to such a pitch that to prevent further incident, the redcoats who had been sent to cow Boston had to be removed with less than glory to British arms to the safety of Castle William in Boston Harbour. The withdrawal gave opportunity for the infinite wit and raillery of Mr Edmund Burke, who, of all the speakers of his time, is the best known to posterity. Burke's ideas had the great advantage of being housed in mastery and felicity of language. Had his ideas been fuzzy, verbal beauties would not have helped, but his political thinking was acute and incisive. Though often prolix and overstated, his remarks became epigrams because they were so well phrased. He had a way of winding into his subject like a serpent, said Oliver Goldsmith, who thought him in conversation the equal of Dr. Johnson. Dr. Johnson agreed. 
Burke talks because his mind is full. No man of sense could meet Mr. Burke by accident under a gateway to avoid a shower without being convinced that he was the first man in England. He often talked at such length as to empty the house, and so vehemently that his friends had to hold him down by the skirts of his coat to restrain his passion. But his wit and intelligence prevailed. The bite of his speeches on America, wrote Horace Walpole, excited continual bursts of laughter even from Lord North and the ministers themselves. His pathos drew iron tears from Barre's cheek. His scorn would have excited strangers, if they had not been excluded from a certain debate, to tear ministers to pieces as they went out of the house. Now my aha moment was when she said this, Burke's ideas had the great advantage of being housed in mastery and felicity of language. And when she uses that word felicity, she's talking about the skillful use of language. So I went back and I examined her observations as well as that of some of his contemporaries to see what makes Edmund Burke such an effective communicator. And in those few paragraphs, I found five features which I've worded in the form of five questions. Here they are. Number one, Burke, she said, had a full mind. In other words, he had mastered his subject. So my question number one is, do I know my subject? Effective communicators, they know their stuff. Number two, Burke had taken time for careful thought. I love that. The best communicators, they don't wing it. They study it. So my second question is this. Have I considered this issue from every angle? Have I considered this issue, this topic, this subject from every angle? Not just my perspective, but my opponent's perspective as well. Number three, Burke took the time to get the words right. It was said that he had the mastery and felicity of language. So I hear that and I'm asking myself, number three, have I devoted the time to get the words right? And sometimes that means that if I am trying to get the words right, I may be stuck on a sentence or a phrase or a turn of a speech that may take me a long time in order to get the words right. Spend the time. It will be worth it. Number four, Burke utilized wit and emotion. I call this the communicator's seasoning. Think of it as the communicator's salt and pepper. So number four, the fourth question is this. Have I sprinkled my speech with the communicator's salt and pepper? Have I used wit and emotion? So Burke could be both funny at times and at other times he could be deadly serious and bring a lot of emotion, passion, um, oomph to his talk. And he connected with people. Number five, Burke took the serpent's approach. One of his contemporaries said, he had a way of winding into his subject like a serpent, meaning he had carefully thought through how he would approach and address his topic. He knew how he was going to, to hook them, and he knew how he was going to keep them, and he knew where he was going to take them. So my fifth question is this, have I planned how I'm going to engage and keep my audience? 
Do I know where I'm taking them and how I'm getting them there? You know, in war and love and communication, only the fools rush in. Not Edmund Burke. His ideas had the great advantage of being housed in mastery and felicity or skillfulness of language. Do you want to improve as a communicator? Then ask these five questions. Number one, do I know my subject? Number two, have I considered this issue, this topic, this subject from every angle? Number three, have I devoted the time to get the words right? Number four, have I sprinkled my speech with the communicator's salt and pepper, wit and emotion? Number five, have I planned how I am going to engage and keep my audience? Great questions, and that's my thought on my walk with Barbara Tuckman and her historical masterpiece, The March of Folly. And now, the question is, what will you do with that thought on your walk through life today?